0: As it should, and we live in unprecedented times, so I want to really encourage you, be people of prayer. Uh, We have an opportunity to effect change from heaven, and I would pray that we would do that. Tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, as Paul begins his final journey, uh, he is now going to take and make a long trip to Jerusalem. It will consume, in essence, the remainder of the book of Acts. And as Paul starts this journey, it's kind of like a swan song for him. He's now going to go back through many of the cities and towns that he had founded churches in. Uh, He's going to go back through uh, most of what is modern-day Greece on the eastern coast, and he'll go along uh, through the straits of where the Bosphorus is and uh, across the Aegean Sea, and he's going to go back down along the coast of modern Turkey and Lebanon, And he's going to end up back in Jerusalem. And in the process, he will be arrested. He'll be sent to Rome. Uh, He'll write the letter to the Roman Christians from Philippi as he's imprisoned. And so uh, this is a really interesting time that we're about to to see Paul engage in. And it, it is very clear from how these chapters begin to unfold, Paul realizes that he's going to forfeit his life. Paul realizes it's going to cost him to serve in ministry. Paul realizes that this is nearing the end of his days here on this earth. And we see a man who's dedicated. We see a man who's unwavering. We see a man who refuses to cave into pressure, that in spite of the fact he knows it's going to be hard and he knows it's going to be difficult, he's going to go anyway. And so, so much for us to draw from these last uh, 10 chapters or so that we can really just apply to our lives in, in how we ought to live in these last days. You know, we we have lived as American citizens my whole lifetime, and I'm a Korean War baby, and I have lived my entire lifetime uh, in a modicum of prosperity. Yes, uh nearly served in the Vietnam War myself. Uh, yes, we fought... Uh, in, in Croatia and Kosovo, yes, we have fought in Iraq and we've had these wars, but largely the country uh, has been not horribly affected by those things. Individuals, yes. Families, yes. Many have paid the ultimate price uh, in sacrificing their own lives to keep us free. But we have lived in a time of unprecedented uh, material blessing in this country in, in the last 50-plus years. And so I wonder uh, if the Lord looking down from heaven isn't asking the question of us, what have you done with it? What has it counted for? And I know what the Apostle Paul's life counted for. It counted for Christ. And I know that's where our lives are supposed to count. And I pray uh, that as we embark on these next several chapters that we'll uh, ask ourselves some questions. What are we doing with what God's given us? Would you pray with me? Father God, we want to lift up uh, Congressman Pence and Lord, those who are co-authoring this legislation. And God, we do ask that you would grant favor in the Senate. Uh, Lord, we know that you have your eye on every child that's conceived. Lord, it's, it's not our call as to which one has value and which one does not. You from heaven are the author of life. And we believe that there's no such thing as an unwanted baby. Lord, not in your eyes. There may be unplanned pregnancies, and that often is the result of human sin. But, Lord, those children are innocent. They've done nothing. And we pray that, God, you would just grant great wisdom, Lord, to our senators, that they would see this for what it is, that that we have sinned against you. And and Lord, we ask for repentance to just pervade this land. And we pray at the same time as marriage is being attacked that, uh, Father, even the institution that you ordained, Lord, as you set the first man and the first woman on this earth, Lord, you said it was for this reason that a man should leave his father and mother and a woman leave her home and the two should be cleaved together as one uh, in that holy estate, Lord, and we pray that you would just help us, God, to sort out these things uh, in a way that would be pleasing. Help us to not abandon Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, we ask for your hand to be upon the Jewish leaders. We pray that you would be with the Arab leaders, or that they would not contemplate foolishness in attacking Israel. And so we just give it all to you. We pray that you would speak to us now through your word. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 here in Acts 20, and then after the uproar had ceased, and remember as we looked at the silversmiths as they rioted, um, their livelihood was being attacked in essence because people were getting saved. Uh, Their little false gods and idols that they were making out of silver, the things that they were used to pawning off on people as gods, uh, no longer had value. And so their profit line had been cut into that had been uh, done by the Apostle Paul and his gospel team. And so the uproar had ceased, and Paul called the disciples to himself. And I want you to notice the tenderness with which these events begin to unfold. We have not yet seen this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you remember from his conversion experience in chapter 9 until this point, we've just really seen this very dogmatic figure that's come forth it's just like unafraid and he preaches the gospel and he moves on and he gets beat up and thrown out of places and he's just on fire for the Lord but make no mistake he had made friends and he deeply loved those with whom he had ministered both with and to and I want you to notice here that he embraced them And departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed about three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, uh, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he begins to make his plans based on what he knows he's going to uh, encounter in the way of opposition. And if you remember, as we've studied these various churches, very often it was the Jewish people who came against the Apostle Paul. They considered him a traitor. Uh, He had been a Pharisee. Uh, He was about as high up as you could get without being of the priestly order. And so he was considered an anathema to the Jewish people. And every time he showed up, if there were Jews there, he both had the opportunity to minister in the synagogue because he was Jewish and also Roman. But he was also hated in the synagogue because he was preaching Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And so he stays there and he decides that he's going to return through Macedonia And so to kind of put this into perspective for you, uh, he's up in the area of what is eastern Greece. He's on the edge of the Aegean Sea. He's moving through Thessalonica and Corinth and Philippi and all of those cities that are kind of on the eastern coast of Greece. And he's moving around now to the western side of the Aegean Sea. Uh, He's going to eventually make his landfall here in a little bit in Troas, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he's going to basically go down the coast. He's going to travel a little bit by foot, and some of it by sailing along the coastal areas. He's going to go back past Ephesus and Miletus and all these towns, Lystra and Derbe, places that we've already heard. He's going to go past and through those towns and cities in essence saying goodbye. He doesn't really think that he's ever coming back again. And so he now lists these things, and Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, and so now he's crossed over, he's uh, in essence in modern-day Turkey, and also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby. Notice how he's collected kind of one or two people uh, from almost every major work that he started. He, he had become... Uh, In essence, by this time, he was the father of these churches. He was really the father of the the Gentile church. And so he's being accompanied by quite an entourage that represents uh, all of these churches. And so... Uh, now Timothy has joined them, and Tychias, and Trophimus of Asia, and these men going ahead waited for us in Troas, and so they crossed across the narrow portion of the Aegean Sea, not all the way to the isthmus there that separates the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea, but they rather crossed over uh, by boat uh, through what would be uh, the western and northwestern portion of the Aegean Sea, and so... You're going to see that, again, Dr. Luke will begin to record as he goes with them, and we'll see here in just a few verses that he begins to use the pronoun we, that he has joined them as well. And so here we see Paul dedicated to make it back to Jerusalem. As we discussed a week or so ago, he is going to head back to Jerusalem because he's made a vow to God. And it is pretty clear to me that that was the Nazarite vow, and he needed to finish that vow in Jerusalem. He wanted to make it by Passover. He has not done that. We're going to find out here very shortly that instead of Passover, he's going to hopefully make it by Pentecost. And so he's going to travel for about three months now, and these events begin to unfold. And... and the work that God wanted Paul to do was not yet done, and it's very similar to many of the great men of faith, especially of the last couple hundred years. D.L. Moody was not widely known for his travels, but he did, in fact, travel to England on the very first time that he went to England, uh, spending that time in transit on a ship. Uh, When he landed in England, he said, surely I will go back to the United States and I shall never see this place again, because he had spent the whole time seasick. He literally was throwing up the entire time he was on that journey. And you can imagine a journey uh, perhaps of a couple of weeks at that time, uh, just spending the whole time seasick. For most of us, uh, well, if I've got to be seasick for two weeks to serve the Lord, I guess I won't serve the Lord. D.L. Moody went back to England five more times because he believed God had called him to England to preach Christ. England had sent the great evangelist to the shores of America, the George Whitfields, and he felt like it was time that we paid that debt back. And he said, I- I'm going to go. He-, he first said, I wouldn't. But his heaviest burden was to go back and minister to the people that he had ministered to and we find this very often in ministry i I am now getting to the place and time in ministry in my own life where i am ministering to people that i have previously ministered to And, and i'm seen more as more as a father figure to many than i used to be more like the son that needed help and so it 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 is wonderful to see how the Lord uses our time in ministry and to go back and revisit those things. I can't tell you how many cycles of youth pastors I've seen at the camp. Uh, I've had the privilege of of seeing kids that were dedicated as babies go on to serve the Lord, get married, and have children. Uh, It it is awesome to see the Lord work in those things. And so Paul has now kind of taken this last farewell swing Uh, down the coast of of what is uh, the the Asian continent, specifically Turkey, and what is modern-day Lebanon, uh, and down into, of course, modern-day Israel. And as he meets these churches along the way, as he spends time, he's going to write the epistle to Romans. Uh, He's going to have a couple of basic goals. His main purpose is just to simply encourage the saints. I think this is a lost art form uh, in, in much of the church today. I think the church has kind of forgotten. It's almost like we get things going, and then we forget that people are involved in it. And they're out there on the front lines. I got a call yesterday from my dear friend, Junior, who's our director down at our Brazil facility. And, you know, we're separated by 6,500 miles. It's not like he lives next door. Um, But I... The Lord has used me in his life, and, and I'm delighted that that's been the case, and all glory to the Lord for it, nothing from Jeff. But the bottom line is is I very often forget that he's down there, and I get a call, and it's like, oh, that's right, I, I haven't been praying for him and for Delinda and for Victorian and, and all the kids as as I should. Uh, I, you know, I'm not praying for for George and Itsu in Hungary, and I, I I forget that there are other works that have been starting that started that we've directly had an impact uh, in the lives of those people, and so to encourage them, remind them that God's still on the throne. Uh, if you've been following the news, Brazil just a few months ago, uh, actually not even two months ago, went through a tremendous flooding and. It's actually on the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro, and and because the fact that they've already garnered the next Olympic Games uh, down there, the Brazilian government did not want the world to know what had actually happened. There were more than 10,000 people killed in those floods. Didn't make the news, did it? Uh, We have people down there that are ministering in some of those villages outside of the north and eastern side of Rio de Janeiro, and the death toll was huge. Uh, they were using cargo containers to just stack bodies like cordwood. And Junior called and said, we have to do something. I said, yes, by all means, take every resource we have available to us and go do it to encourage them to go minister. Now, all it took was just a word of encouragement. They're down there now. They're actually in Rio. We have a team of 50 people down there uh, ministering in that region and including a couple of doctors from Campo Moral, the, the town where we have our facility, that just volunteered because they heard these wacky, crazy Christian people that actually do what God's Word says are there, and they just want to go see what it was about, and they're ministering to people. We need to have the gift of encouragement. Uh, second really purpose for being there was to take up a collection for the needy churches that were, uh, in essence, the believers in Jerusalem. You can imagine what it would be like to be uh, a Christian church in a Jewish city. It wasn't easy, and the churches were largely small house churches, and very often uh, they were persecuted and, and made it very difficult for them to earn a living. And so he begins this a uh, time that he's going to say farewell to these churches that he started. Verse 6, but we sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread. So he doesn't make it back to Jerusalem by Passover. Uh, it's after the days. And then five days he joined them at Troas, and we stayed there seven days. And so he makes the trip across uh, the Aegean Sea. And now on the first day of the week, it's important. People often ask, why do we worship on Sunday? Um, Because every time that you find the body of Christ gathering together in the New Testament, it's always on the first day of the week. It's always on Sunday. And so it has nothing to do with there being a specific prescribed day. has nothing to do with the Jewish Sabbath, as I've shared with you before. The Sabbath was given to the Jews. It was a day of rest of the Ten Commandments. It is the only one that Jesus himself did not repeat in the New Testament. And the Sabbath is clearly defined uh, in the Old Testament as being for the Jews. It was a sign between them and God. And so that Sabbath day or Saturday was specifically for the Jewish people. As far as the church is concerned, they always got together on Sunday. That was the first day of the week, and so it is here. So now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now I want you to know something: that it was a day, and he continued to midnight. So this was their church services were not, you know, everybody looking at their watch at an hour and fifteen minutes, going, "It's almost over. I wish you would just shut up, sit down. It's done. What else can you say?" No, this was a normal church service with six, eight hours. That was what people did then. Now part of that was because they didn't have. You know, Game Boy. They didn't have you know 174,000 television channels to go watch. Uh, There were there weren't as many distractions, and so some of it certainly was that. But the fact of the matter is, they loved each other's company. They enjoyed spending time together. Very often the church services were also a communal meal. And so as it says here to break bread, that actually was didn't mean that they were taking necessarily of the Lord's Supper. They were actually sharing a meal together. We're going to see that they actually did also celebrate communion. Um, but in this first phase, they basically they were gathering together and they were having a potluck. They were having a fellowship dinner. And so his message went until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room and where they were gathered together. Now, there's a certain man, and I want you to notice this. I love the story of Eutychus. Eutychus was kind of one of those guys that when you first look at it, it's almost like there's nothing but negative. And then you realize at least he was there. You know, the poor guy was sitting in a window. It seems as though he may have been a servant. And notice what it says and there in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. Now, I can tell you because I I will confess to you, I have fallen asleep in church many times. So whenever you do that and you're here, I I promise I won't throw anything at you. But if you fall over dead, I may not be able to raise you up either. So just know that there's a price that might be paid if you fall asleep in church. Now, it's... He's sinking into a deep sleep, and he was overcome by sleep. And the Greek tense of that seems to say that he was exhausted. He was just tired. He was worn out. He was frazzled. And family, can I just share with you, I know that many times you guys are just like that when you get here. Sometimes I am. You know, I I work a full-time job. And so... You know, I I know that sometimes people are frazzled. I know they come sometimes directly from work. Uh, Poor Luke got here to to play percussion. Uh, He literally drove into the parking lot instead of going home. Uh, That happens. Uh, There are times when I've come straight from my office at the camp to church. There are times when you come from your jobs. There are times when you come from having fed the family. I know God knows you're tired but praise God that you've dedicated that time to the Lord. You came to hear from the Lord and the Lord has a message for you. So uh you know if you fall asleep uh don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. And he was overcome by sleep and as Paul continued speaking now, now this is a pastor's worst nightmare. Okay, this is this is like I'm really Boring, I don't have an idea what I'm saying here. I don't know what happened, but the congregation's falling asleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, this is not, you know, you don't put this on your website. You know, (laughs) Eutychus died last week sitting in the window listening to the message. It you know it's not really all that popular of a of a thing that you want to share with most people, and so this young man who was overcome falls out of a window, and Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, "Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him." I think this is a beautiful picture of God understanding the heart of man. God knows why you're here tonight. God knows why everyone shows up at church. And God has a message for each of us. Very often as is, is I'm teaching, he's speaking to me. I know that seems a little strange to you, but it is very, very true that, that I usually am the first person who's ministered to by the message that God has. Um, not only do I have to study beforehand, but In the process of even glancing at my notes, God is speaking, going, you know what? I need you to say this. And there are a lot of times as people come up after me, well, you said this about halfway through. That was a God thing. God had a word for you. God said something specific so that you would hear it in exactly the way that you heard it, and it was meant just for you. I very often have people, I was like, man, you must have read my diary from today. Were you listening in on my cell phone? Not at all. You know, did you did you talk to my kids? Did you talk to my wife? You've been talking to people about me? How, no, not at all. That's just it's a God thing. God knows what you need to hear. And so here, this young man, taking time, he was there, probably a servant, falls out the window, falls three stories, no doubt onto rocks and you know whatever. It wasn't like they had a trampoline in the backyard. I can tell you that. Don't trouble yourself for his life is in him. And now, when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten, and taken a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted, and not a little comforted. I'm, I'm thinking so. Can you imagine that? You know. It's only about eight feet out that window to the ground. You fall out of there, you're probably going to knock some sense into yourself, but you probably won't die. This guy's dead. Can you imagine what it was like for the rest of the people gathered in that room to all of a sudden see Paul run out the door, go down there, fall on this guy, embrace him, and they bring him back in the room and he's alive. They were not only comforted, they were encouraged. And all of this stuff, it's interesting, this whole little story here, and it seems kind of weird, but this whole little story just shows how much everything was focused on the Lord. The whole thing was about the Lord. It was the Lord's day. It was the first day of the week. Um, The church was born. Uh, Of course, the Spirit of God also came on the first day of the week and filled the church. So it, it was the Lord that was in the midst of all of this stuff. We sometimes forget that. I think a lot of Christians are guilty of just kind of believing in some kind of divine karma kind of thing. Like it's just, well, you know, always at the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time. God has a perfect plan. God had a plan for you being here tonight. God had a plan for every word you spoke, everything you heard, every person you met, every mile you drove, everything you learned. Every task you undertook, God had a perfect plan in every second of this day. And so for this young man, his whole goal was to get there. Can you imagine how his faith was built up? Because I guarantee you, a three-story fall is enough time to think, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good. Even if you're slightly asleep, even if you're dozing off. Uh, It was not an instantaneous death when he hit the ground. I can guarantee you that. But we know he was brought back alive. So you talk about his faith being encouraged. We don't really know what happened to him, but we know this. We know this young man's life was changed, and so was everybody else's who saw it. How many times do we look at accidents as accidents when actually they're divine appointments and God had a purpose and a plan in it? How many times people have gotten a disease, some kind of sickness, maybe broken something or had some type of tragic thing happen that we look at it as a tragic accident when it was really a divine plan of the Lord because he had some purpose to use it. Everything has a purpose. Everything that happens in our life from God's perspective has a purpose. We may not understand it at first. We may not even like it. We we may not want it, but from God's perspective, he has a plan for falling asleep in windows and plunging to your death. Uh, This is one of those beautiful things that you can look back on. If God can use somebody falling asleep during a very long sermon, plummeting out a window, landing on his head, dying and being raised, and the whole group was not just a little encouraged. It means they were a bunch encouraged. I want you to notice who these people were. They were the Lord's people. When the Lord's people gathered together on the Lord's day to do the Lord's thing and to hear from the Lord, the Lord uses it. The whole thing's about the Lord. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were were in the midst, every bit of this whole little tiny story here found in Acts chapter 20 is about the Lord. It was the Lord's message. Uh, God was being declared in that time that they were gathering together. Uh, they were reading the Old Testament scriptures. They were probably accounting orally for the New Testament things that were spoken by Jesus. And so uh, as these times were, were given over to, in essence, the preaching of God's word, uh, as men sat around and heard those things, their lives were changed. The whole thing was about God himself. and And I pray that we can say that about the times when we get together. And I want you to notice one final Lord's thing out of this. Notice it was the Lord's power. It it wasn't Paul's power. This Eutychus was dead. I mean, the guy had, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was kind of, you know, not really altogether there. I mean, who sits in a window and starts to doze and doesn't recognize, hey, if I fall out of this thing, I'm going to kill myself. So we can also look at the negative side of it the guy probably wasn't thinking quite right but i want you to notice what the lord's power does it's interesting his name eutychus means fortunate <laughs> it's like how fortunate is it when you plummet to your death you know i don't but god has a way of working those things together as he falls asleep and plummets out the window god's power is more than sufficient to to raise this young man because his name uh, being applied, the, the word that's used here for a young man uh, could mean a man between 24 and 40, but it most likely is the Greek word in the most common text of pais, which is somebody who's probably 14 to 20. So this is just a young guy, and it means he was likely a servant. I think we need to be really careful to see God's power in all this. God had a way that he wanted to minister to that group of people, and if it took somebody plunging to their death so that God could raise them from the dead, then God would get the glory for it, and only God would get the glory for it. There was nobody else in that room that was going to go, well, you know, I'm just down there doing CPR on him, and they bring him back, shocking him back to life or whatever. Nah, no, he was dead, and God's power raised him back up. We can trust God. If God's in the midst of the things that we're doing, then we can trust God to show up in power. And it's interesting to see how all of this just kind of plays into the rest of this message because sometimes we we need to ask ourselves, what is it that keeps us awake? We know what put him to sleep. That was a really long day followed by a really long evening, probably by some stifling heat inside of an upper room with a bunch of oil lamps burning in it maybe the air wasn't too good we don't know but we know this what keeps him and what kept him alive was the power of god Uh, that's what made him alive he wasn't alive because he was listening to paul he was alive because of the power of god and so god meets us when we're looking for him verse 13 paul begins to deliver now this message and then When we went ahead of the ship, notice the we, the personal pronoun there, we, means that Luke now has joined them, went ahead to the ship and sailed across to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board, so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So Paul's going to take a little walk. He just wants some time by himself. It's kind of a beautiful picture of, of how We make our plans, and sometimes the Lord gives us a little bit of an adjustment there. And and I can tell you there have been times when I've been forced uh, to walk by myself, and there's been times when I've intentionally walked by myself. And I don't just mean in the walking sense of taking a journey, but in the sense of being alone with the Lord and letting God work in your life. There are times when we as human beings, I think, depend on people too much and not enough on God. And I believe this is one of the times when Paul just needed some time alone with the Lord. And so he took a little stroll without everybody else with him. Because remember, now he's got an entourage kind of traveling with him that represents an awful lot of people. And so he decides he's going to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, And there they sailed from there. And so he takes his journey about 100 miles, a little over 100 miles, actually on foot. So uh, a couple of days. And they sailed there and came the next day opposite Chios. And the following day, they arrived at Samos and stayed at Chirogium, And then the next day, they came to Miletus. And so now they've traveled along, in essence, the coast of Turkey. And they're moving through the little islands that are off the coast there and spending time in these uh, various stops along the way, probably just to pick up provisions and say hi and uh, to those that they might have met along the way or known. And for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Now, imagine this. This is, of course, one of the major cities in Paul's journey. Um, he writes a vast majority of his letters, uh, not only to but from there. This is a very important city. Um, notice why. Why? Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to Jerusalem, if possible, to be there on the day of Pentecost. And so he knew that if he pulled into Ephesus, he was not going to get by with just a hello, goodbye, nice to see you guys, I'm out of here. He he was literally going to spend a long time there, and he was on God's timetable. Now I want you to notice something here. This is so important because sometimes people will, you know, and I feel guilty. You know, I, and I'll just tell you, we have friends kind of all over the world. And there are times when we go places, and there are times when God's called me to go spend some time with a specific person. And I have to literally make a choice. If I stop there, there is no way I'm going to do all the things that God's called me to do. I'm going to go there and they're going to want to take me out to dinner and they're going to want to find out what's been going on in ministry and I will do the same thing with them. So you you, you have to reach the place and time in your life where you're not trying to please people all the time. You know, if everybody in Ephesus had figured out that Paul sailed on by, they would have all been hurt. So notice he just simply does it. He doesn't call them, hey, I'm going to be by Ephesus, but I'm not coming to see you. He sails on by. Sometimes God just says, you know, it's time for you to move on. I've got other things for you to do. You'll get to see him in heaven. Uh, I have learned I can't, every time I go to Brazil, I cannot stop by and see every single church that's planted down there, that there's somebody there that I know them. I just can't do it. I've got other things God's called me to do. You're going to find this in your own life. There are times when you may need to go see one son, but not another. Maybe one daughter, but not the other daughter. Maybe you're going to spend time with the grandkids and not see the kids at all. Who knows? There's a time for those things. You have to be listening to the Lord. And so here he is focused on Jerusalem. He's gonna head down and do what God's calling him to do. And so from Miletus, Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And so he walks that distance and, uh, spends some time. Uh, you know, personally, I actually prefer walking if I can, but I happen to enjoy sailing too, so I, either one works for me. As he brings this, these elders, or uh, the presbyteros, those, who are part of the presbytery, the, the leadership of the church, um, basically he just wants to impart into their lives so that they can impart into the body of Christ. Uh, there are times when I almost feel sorry for Pastor Chuck. Uh, you know, when you, when you have been used of the Lord as he is, um, when he's at a pastor's conference, the poor guy doesn't have 30 sec. He can't even walk across the hallway to go into another room without somebody. Can I just have five minutes of your time? After a while, you really have to be focused on what God's called you to do. And you're not being rude. You're just recognizing that there's only so many seconds in a day, and God's got a plan for him. And uh, sometimes you have to make sure that you're focused in on those things. And so Paul... Was uh, going to deliver a message to this church. And it was a, a local church. And so these men basically were pastors. So he has kind of a mini-pastors conference now uh, in this next passage. Notice verse 18. And when they had come with him, notice this is just the elders. This is not the whole church. He actually brings them from Ephesus to him. He's on the coast. And they, he does not go into Ephesus itself. He says, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. Notice the message. The message is, my doctrine and my duty matched up. The way I lived my life was what I said. And what I said was the way I lived my life. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears, with trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, and now see and now go, and I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He said, the message that I preach to you, I preach to you with my life. I told you about these things, and I lived these things in front of you. And family, it is so important that we are Christ's diplomats everywhere we go. That we live our lives uh, without hypocrisy, that what we say and what we do are the same, that people can look at that testimony, that that in essence message that is preached by you every day, and people often, oh, well, you know, I'm not a pastor. Well, yeah, in a way you are, because you have a message to deliver to the world, and that message, according to this passage, is Christ crucified it's the message of jesus christ as lord for the remission of sin it's the god is first it's repentance towards god because remember it's god the father that exacts the penalty for sin his perfect justice demands that that price be paid the only way to have the penalty waived is by faith p- placing yourself by faith in in christ jesus and let he then his sacrifice on the cross covers that sin but god still demands that the sacrifice be paid so you can either pay it yourself or jesus will pay it for you and so paul preached that message and it cost him dearly i mean his life was a tormentous type of life i mean he didn't really have a place to live Uh, he was an itinerant preacher he basically lived off in essence the goodness of other people, not so much from a physical standpoint. We're actually going to cover that on Sunday. He worked to supply his own way, but he didn't own a home. He didn't have, you know, burrows with the apostles, you know AP stamped on their hindquarters. We we don't find him with a bunch of wealth. He simply said, You know what, I so believe that this is the message that God's called me to preach, I'm gonna preach it with my life. And if it cost me my life, that's okay too. That's dedication. And so he has the, the past here. Uh, notice the present, verse 23, and except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying, that chains and tribulations await <laughs> me. He goes, you know what, in, in, in my present, my past was, I, I didn't hold anything back from you, but my present is, man, my life is kind of tough. He said, notice in one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He said all these things, my my life being pretty tough, all these travels, not owning my own home, uh, he had to rent somebody else's donkey if he wanted to take a journey on a beast of burden. Uh, he he wasn't walking around in the finest of clothes. He had given up all the things that life holds dear uh, with regard to the way humankind now sees the world. Basically, we look at it as what we can get out of it. Paul said, it's what I can put into it. Now I want to finish the race. I started well. I preached the right message these things that have come upon me, they don't move me. They don't push me away from what God intends to do with my life. I know that the only thing that matters really ultimately is what God thinks. All that really matters is that I finish the race that he's called me to. And he says, so whatever it is, it doesn't move me. You know, Connie, I've been through a few things. I, I, I can tell you there's times when you're tempted to be moved. You know, we almost lost Brandon. I was like, Lord, I don't know if I can pay this price. But none of these things moved me. You know, you you sit there and you look at your life and you go, man, I'm heading towards 60. What am I going to do? You can't be moved. You have to just keep pressing on with the Lord. And so you do make a choice and not let things move you. For indeed, verse 25 says, Now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. He says, this is my farewell. My present to you guys is I'm saying goodbye. I'm not going to come back. This is the last time you're going to see me. And I want you to know something. doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to keep preaching Christ until God takes me home. That's a man of conviction. Could be a woman of conviction. That's someone who said, you know what? I count not my own life dear. And therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare you the whole counsel of God. There wasn't anywhere that he went that he did not preach Christ crucified for the remission of sin. Now remember some of the places he's been. He's been to the Iraqabus, and he's, he's sat there with those people. He's been in the council of the Temple of Diana and shared with those people. He's been in that wicked city Corinth and shared with those people. He's gone gone to Thessalonica and shared with them. Everywhere he's gone, he's taken that message, and that message has cost him. The Jews have hunted him down and tried to kill him. The people that heard the message got raised up in all kinds of fervor and said, you know what, he's cutting into our business enterprises. We're going to try and kill him. There's a cost for preaching the gospel. And he says, you know what, none of those things move me. Wouldn't it be awesome to reach the end of our lives and say, there's no blood on my hands. Every single person. That God ever put in my path, if they didn't know anything else about me or from me, they knew that Jesus Christ was the way and the truth and the life. That was Paul's message. He didn't care about the rest of it. He just cared that people knew that Jesus was the only way of salvation. It's still calling out to us for that same course of life, that same ministry. You know, people think of ministry kind of more of like what I do full-time ministry or what Connie does or you know somebody who works at the church so to speak can I share with you that's not full-time ministry full-time ministry is putting forth the name of Jesus until he comes that's full-time ministry you can be in full-time ministry and be a doctor a lawyer you can work at another man's treasure Uh, you you can work for Caltrans you can be a teacher You can be a mom at home. You you can be a full-time minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ with any type of vocation. Any type of vocation. The question is, is, what does your life stand for? It should stand for Jesus. Everywhere we go. There are several things, and there's a ton of words here that I would just draw quick attention to. Um, Here in verse 24, he kind of sees himself as an accountant. He he examined his assets, he examines his liabilities, and he decided to put Jesus Christ ahead of everything else. In other words, at the top of his balance sheet was Jesus Christ alone. He he sees himself as as an athlete or a runner. I'm going to keep running the race. I'm going to keep moving. He sees himself as, as a steward of the things of God. He received that message from the Lord. A steward is someone who is in charge of another person's goods, something that's been entrusted to us. When we talk about stewardship, that means that those things don't belong to us. In a biblical sense, stewardship means that I am handling the things of God. That's everything. That's my life. That's uh, the riches. That's homes, cars. That's business enterprises. Everything on this earth actually belongs to God. So we're stewards of of that. We're also stewards of the mysteries of God. We're stewards of the salvation of God. We're, We're the ones that bear those things now to the world. Very, very few people, I believe, come to Christ without actually bumping into somebody who shares the gospel with them. It's not impossible, and I think God does do that in extreme circumstances. But most people come to Christ because someone shares the gospel with them. Someone preaches the word of God were also witnesses. Notice it says here that he testified of the grace of God. That word testify means he witnessed to. He said, of all the things that I know, I am a witness to the grace of God. That means he received it himself. That that grace that he received, he now shared with other people. He also used the word preaching. I, I declare this message, in essence, as a herald of the king. He was saying, you know what? I'm not preaching my own message. I'm preaching the message that God gave to me. Remember his conversion experience. Remember what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me, Paul? What have I done to you? And, of course, Paul was persecuting the Lord Jesus. He was trying to kill Christians, and yet he ends up getting saved. So the message wasn't Paul's message, it was God's message, because the message he received was the message of grace. Because God would have been perfectly justified. Jesus could have come to him and said, Saul, Saul, your time's done. Saul, Saul, uh, you've been a pain in the side of my people for long enough. I'm taking you out. You see, if God was vengeful, if God was in essence, looking to exact his pound of flesh, then if there was ever anybody who deserved to die for being the epitome of evil, it was Saul of Tarsus. And yet Saul of Tarsus received the grace of God. So as he brings forth that message and heralds that truth, as he preaches that to the world, how much emphasis do you think it had because he himself personally experienced the grace of God? That's why I think the most powerful witnesses in this world are not really so much preachers who preach the message. It is people who preach the message. It's people whose lives have been transformed that that God uniquely fits that person's life to go minister to that one person. That one individual that you alone can just totally relate to with your life experience. Saul of Tarsus, because of his... Public persona before now is public persona being used for the kingdom of God. The sixth picture that's there in verse 26 is a, as, as a watchman. It's a picture that we also get from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, and it simply means to, to be looking out, to be looking over, to be looking ahead. He saw that danger and did something about it. One of the reasons that I, I engage Uh, so much in the things with family research councils, I think that role of watchman has been largely overlooked by a lot of pastors. They're not looking at what's going on in the world today going, what are we doing? Why are we not saying something? Where is the voice of God in the the public square? I can tell you our forefathers preached on Sunday during the Revolutionary War and then went and fought in the battle. I'm not suggesting that every pastor should take up arms, but what I am saying is there shouldn't be a difference between what we are standing here and what we are in the public square. My faith should affect my worldview. The things that I say here, I should be able to say to somebody in, in an arena of government. I shouldn't have a different standard for the sanctity of life here in the church that I do when I get down to voting. They need to be one and the same. Paul was a watchman, and he was a faithful watchman. He simply looked out and saw what was coming and did something about it. As we wrap this up tonight, verse 28, And therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among you which has the Holy Spirit. And he's made you overseers to a sh- as, a sh- as a shepherd to the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he said we're simply overseeing the flock of God when any pastor says my church, that is either a gross misnomer or it's a complete lack of understanding of whose church it is. This is God's church. You all were purchased by Christ's blood, not mine. Uh, you're not Calvary chapelites. you are little Christs, you're Christians. you belong to Jesus. okay so that's where we get the name. That's where our kinship belongs. Christ purchased you. God purchased you with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. This is a picture of the very last days, that, that the church will be infiltrated by people pretending to be sheep who will really be wolves, who will attack God's people, specifically within the church, and they will come as vicious beasts in essence. And also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And we certainly see this in the world that we're in today. There's another gospel being preached. There's an all-inclusive gospel of syncretism. that You know, just basically, if you just mix everything together, it'll all come out in the end. There's a homogenization of all faiths, you know, that Basically, if we just all will sit around and talk long enough, we'll find out that Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Christians all believe the same thing. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And it's a damnable lie. It's going to cost men their souls. Because Scripture is very clear that there's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. There will be, and Paul knew it. God showed it to him taking disciples after their, their own selves. And it sounds good. It seems very uh, welcoming. We hear that word a lot. It seems a lot like community. We hear that word a lot. You know, can't we all just coexist and get along together? And, of course, at a human level, we want to bring people to the Lord. We can't do that by being adversarial. But we also can't let them believe that all roads lead to heaven. That's not the message either. And therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I'm putting you in God's hands because he's the only one that really can handle this situation. For I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He said, I didn't do this for money. That's why it's so tragic when you find pastors that, that really, one could rightly say they're in it for the money. You know, a pastor, quite frankly, doesn't need a quarter of a million dollars a year and a beachfront home. God gives that to you from an inheritance from somewhere, then, you know, that's between you and God. But to take that from God's people is an anathema to God. It's not why we do it. Matter of fact, as we get into the pastoral epistles, we're going to go to 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and Philemon on Sundays. Not a lover of money is one of the qualifications for a pastor. And yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. He said, I worked myself to provide for myself so that no one could accuse me of being in it for the money. That, too, has been lost. It doesn't mean that pastors can't be full-time pastors, and it doesn't mean that they are not worthy uh, of their hire. Scripture says that a pastor is worthy of his hire, and, in fact, double honor is due to those who teach the Word. But Paul said that he would rather work and pay his own way so that the gospel wouldn't be hindered, so that no one thought that he was just like the silversmiths in Ephesus or that he was doing anything for the wrong motivation. For I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you should support the weak. Paul himself gave to the weak. He worked and gave his money away so that people would have their needs met. That's the example that that the Bible tells us to, to live out. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, for he said, and you're not going to find these words in any of the four Gospels, I'll just remind you, because Paul likely heard these from the Lord Jesus himself. Remember, he was spoken to on the road to Damascus, for it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It might be the greatest of all the Beatitudes, to be quite honest with you, the the Beatitudes, what we ought to be more blessed to give than it is to receive. Paul lived that. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. And so this wonderful, wonderful parting uh, that he has with the elders from the church that he founded. So much time and effort and energy had put into growing them in the Lord. And here they're all standing on a dock just hugging on the Apostle Paul, weeping with him because they knew he was he was really heading home to see Jesus. They didn't know when, but he had said that he wasn't coming back. And so he closes this out by basically saying, I've lived without shallowness i've lived an uncovetous life i have lived without laziness i haven't been selfish i've given more than i've received and you can well imagine what those people thought of a life that was lived like that may we do the same amen let's pray father god we thank you for this beautiful picture of a man whose heart once was just so wicked Lord, we think on what the Apostle Paul was when he was still Saul of Tarsus. And yet, as he nears this final journey, as he takes a trip down the Mediterranean coast, saying goodbye to those whom he loves, Lord, what a change, what a transformation. May it be said of us, Lord, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. May it be said of us that we've lived our lives according to your word, with your plan and purpose in view. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace that saved us. And we pray that you cause us to walk in that grace, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. And as we leave this place, Lord, get us safely home. And tomorrow we look forward to those divine appointments that you've called us to. We bless you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Next week, chapter 21.